Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. That will be our text this morning. And if you're following along in the worship guide and the outline that's been provided for you, you'll see the title of the message this morning is Law, Grace, and the Gospel. We have sung about the magnificent and wonderful grace of God. And um, as we approach this text this morning, let us, let us begin with prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. And as we have sung about before your throne above, we, I, as I think about being before your throne, recognize the great inability of my own life to attain the goodness that should be deserved, that should, should happen, that needs to happen in order to have salvation in you. And we thank you. I thank you this morning for Christ and the righteousness that he has given to each of us who have believed and trust in you. I pray, God, that this morning you would open our eyes to see the wonderful grace that we, see, that we have in the gospel of Christ. As we look in this text this morning, open our, our minds to comprehend the depth of your holiness at the same time to recognize the immense grace, the wonderful grace that you have extended at us to make it possible for us to come into your presence. Thank you, God, that in your holiness, you have provided a way to make us righteous, that we can come into your presence, such as this morning, with a body of believers, and we can worship you. And so this morning, God, it is our heart's desire to worship you in spirit and in truth through your word, through responding to your word, through singing about you and singing to you. We declare your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this text this morning, if you opened, as you've opened up to John chapter 7 and chapter 8, you might recognize that this text is kind of set apart by uh, by brackets, maybe even in some of your versions, translations that you have, uh, it, it may even be referenced in the footnote. Uh, it may say something like, um, this portion is not included in some of the earliest original manuscripts. And so when you see that and you read it, maybe you've thought before, huh, what does that mean? Well, I want us to see this morning what that means in fact, many of us have probably quoted a verse from this particular passage of Scripture. Uh, and the verse that we've quoted is the one that's found in verse 7, where Jesus says, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Any of you ever said that verse? Any, anyone ever used that verse? You know, it, it normally comes in the context of the conversation that says, Well, let me get the plank out of my own eye first, and, and then I can... Uh, then I can speak to this person, or then I can encourage this person, then I can challenge this person in the sin that's in, in their own lives. You know, but this verse really speaks about recognizing the sin in our own lives before condemning someone else, but it also speaks to the need for extending grace, the need to extend grace to others. This morning, I, I must confess to you that as I approached this passage, I 
was trepidatious. I wasn't sure if this was a passage that I was going to preach. In fact, this is probably one of the reasons that it's taken until this time for me to preach through the Gospel of John expositionally. But, you know, this is the, this is the great... Uh, this is a great benefit of preaching expositionally through a passage of Scripture or through a book of Scripture because we're not able to pick and choose which passages we want to deal with. We, we must deal with the text as they come. And so just to say it was uncomfortable for me approaching this passage, some pastors or preachers deal with this passage by not preaching it at all, just kind of skipping over it. Others wait and they they preach it maybe at the end of chapter 8 after the Feast of Tabernacles section is over. But as we approach this passage this morning, I believe that ultimately it needs to be preached because we find it here in Scripture. We find it at this point in the Gospel of John. There's been really no shortage of critical scholarship engaging in discussion about this passage. In fact, in preparation for this sermon, I consulted nine different scholars, nine different commentaries, and, and referenced, uh, referenced them all while studying this passage. And in, in all of these conservative, uh, conservative scholars and commentaries that I referenced, all of them indicated the uh, dealing with this text by placing it as an excursus right where it was or by placing it as an addendum at the end of uh, this section. And so as we look at this text this morning, and we're going to read it in a moment, there are a few things that we'll cover about textual criticism just to kind of help us maybe wrap our minds a little bit around what's happening uh, in this text and why there's some debate over the authenticity of this particular passage in the Gospel of John. And so let me just state from the beginning, before we look at the external and internal evidence, that I, I affirm that, uh, that this passage is, is authentic, it's historical, uh, it was an accurate or an actual event that happened in the life and the ministry of Christ. And so I believe that's why we have it recorded for us here in the Gospel of John, where we have it recorded. Uh, if you're using a chairback Bible, maybe you've already found it, but I failed to mention that you can, uh, you can find this passage in John chapter 7 on page 894. Let us, uh, let us read the text in, beginning in verse 53 of John chapter 7. If you found your place, say amen and follow along as I read. Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him. So they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down. And with his finger wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one. Beginning with the older ones, he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? 
Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Now, this is an incredible passage that gives us insight into uh, Jesus's tenderness. And he's as he confronts or as he's confronted with this issue and begins dealing with this woman that has been caught in the act of adultery. And so as as this passage unfolds, uh, we'll see how Jesus exercises grace and mercy toward this woman in the midst of her sin. But before we dive into the text, uh, I wanted to just speak for a moment about the authenticity of this passage and and just share a little bit from textual criticism uh, about the issue surrounding this text. And so the idea or the desire isn't that this text would, would serve or that th- this message wouldn't be a lecture this morning. That's not the desire. I, I pray that it will be uh, edifying and encouraging. I pray that it will be a redemptive message that we can see how the gospel causes us and calls us to embrace what Christ has done through grace. I pray that we can see what Christ does in his interaction with this woman and apply that into our own lives. But this text requires some technical skill. In fact, it requires a technical skill level of of dealing with handwritten manuscripts that we have available to us. And so when uh, when you see that later manuscripts of this story, the most... uh, the original and are the, the uh, not original, but um, the most significant, the most accurate manuscripts don't record, uh, the early ones don't record this text. It causes us to ask a question. Why then do we find it in our text here? You know, there are some 5,800 plus manuscripts, handwritten copies of manuscripts or portions of copies that we have available today. And for these scholars to work with these manuscripts, they have to be skilled in reading the ancient texts, especially the Greek texts. And before I share the externally internal evidence in dealing with the text's authenticity, the reason that we preach this text this morning is because we believe it to be, I believe it to be, authentically historical in its occurrence and it talking about Jesus' ministry. I believe it belongs to the canon of Scripture, but it wasn't originally part of John's gospel. So for a moment, I just want to submit or or examine the external evidence that casts doubt on the authenticity of this passage being originally included in the gospel of John. First, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts omit these verses. There's only one of the earliest manuscripts that has these verses in it. Secondly, of the many later manuscripts that record the story, They record it in different locations. So sometimes it's found in John chapter 7, verse 36. Sometimes in some of the later manuscripts, it's found after verse 44. Sometimes it's found, well, most times it's found where we have it, after verse 52. But sometimes it's even found at the end of Gospel of John as an addendum to the Gospel of John. And then it's also been found in some manuscripts in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, between verses 37 and 38. Now, the point that we can see and gather from where we see this found throughout the manuscripts as it's been recorded is that the scribes certainly affirmed that it belonged in Scripture. It belonged as part of the apostolic witness and tradition. 
but we're not sure of is why they placed it in so many different places. They weren't certain of where it needed to go in the midst of the text, but they were certain that they wanted to preserve it. Thirdly, the early Greek church fathers, Irenaeus and Tertullian, they never commented on these verses. It wasn't until the 10th to 12th century that we began seeing the Eastern church fathers commenting on these verses. However, external evidence suggests that early Western church fathers, such as Jerome and Ambrose and Augustine, they commented on these verses as early as 350 to 430 A.D., Jerome was the one who composed the Latin Vulgate and found these verses in many Greek and Latin codices as he began composing the Latin Vulgate. Augustine believed this text was absent from the early manuscripts because he said, early scribes excised this passage or excluded this passage, took it out because it was too lenient on adultery. Well, there's also internal evidence that casts doubt on its authenticity as being part of originally part of the gospel of john and the first one is that it it disrupts the flow of thought if you read from verse 52 and jump down to verse 12 chapter 7 verse 52 which says they answered him you are not also from galilee are you search and see that no prophet arises out of galilee jump down to chapter 8 verse 12 then jesus again spoke to them saying i am the light of the world He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, what's happened is it's it's in the midst of this, this temple address, this temple, the Feast of Tabernacles, where Jesus is speaking. He said, I am the living, or he said, I, from me, rivers of living water will flow. And he uses this analogy of the pouring out of the water there around the altar or on the altar to, to signify, as we covered last week, to signify, uh, the, the dependence on God for rain, also to signify uh, the, uh, the need for God's provision and, and satisfying and Christ himself being the spiritual rock from which this water flows. But then we see in verse 12, he goes and he uses the second metaphor that's used in the Feast of Tabernacles. And the second metaphor is the latter part of the evening at the Feast of Tabernacles, every day would, would, would have this procession to the, the Pool of Siloam where they would bring water and pour it out and they would celebrate and they'd go through the, uh, the psalm singing and declaring Psalm 113 through 118, quoting it and singing it. Well, at night, the counterpart to that was that they would, uh, they would light these four huge candle aubers in, uh, in, the, in the temple court of the women. And as they would light these candelabras, it would be like a spotlight shining in the midst of darkness. And it's at this point where Jesus claims, as we'll see next week, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so this passage really kind of is interjected in the midst of this temple, um, temple feast of tabernacles. Secondly, we see internal evidence that the vocabulary style is more closely aligned with the synoptic tradition. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels, the first three Gospels we have in our New Testament. I say this for three reasons. Number one, the phrase Mount of Olives is often referenced in the synoptic Gospels. Jesus retires at the end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 37 and 38 there. Jesus is retiring at night after he teaches in the temple, and he goes to the Mount of Olives to rest, and then he comes back early in the morning. This is the only place in the Gospel of John where the Mount of Olives is mentioned. 
Secondly, the word scribes is used. And this is the only place in the Gospel of John where the word scribe is used. And then scribes and Pharisees being used together, this is the only place in the Gospel of John where that happens. But it's often, it happens often, it occurs often in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The question then becomes, what do we do with this text, right? What do we do with a text like this when we approach it in Scripture? It's, it's in our canon. It's in our canon of Scripture. We have it here. How do we interpret this external and internal evidence in light of its placement in the story of John's gospel? Perhaps we should consider and give weight to what Augustine claimed in scribal excising for, for leniency. We should conclude, though, that while this passage most likely was not part of John's original text, it offers us an authentic fragment of apostolic tradition. As John MacArthur points out, it contains no teaching that contradicts the rest of Scripture. In fact, this is where we kind of land. It, it doesn't contain any teaching that, that discredits or that contradicts the rest of Scripture. Borchet, in his commentary, comments, I regard this text as fully canonical, and inspired, it's and an inspired pericope, but not as part of the evangelist's original design. A pericope is is simply a, a passage, one passage of scripture as we have here. He says we should treat this important story as a single pericope that the church did not want to lose because it has all the marks of an authentic experience of Jesus' ministry. Leon Morris comments. It persisted in the early church and in time tended to become attached to John's gospel. You know, this too I would add that John chapter 20 verse 30, what we have recorded at the end of John's gospel where he says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. You know, there were many encounters with Jesus that, that others engaged in that aren't recorded in Scripture. And so what I would caution us is that we shouldn't be quick to dismiss this passage because of external and internal evidence. The early church saw this passage as important, and consequently, the evidence that we've seen this morning doesn't point us to errant doctrine. It just causes us to question the placement of it within the Gospel of John. And so we should be careful to look to other passages of Scripture when approaching this one to see how they support the truth of this passage that's been put, uh, put forth in the Gospel of John, how it, how it supports the truth of, of Christ's teaching and engaging with this lady in the midst of the text. And so this morning, I want us to see really kind of the, the central theme of this text is this, that the law was fulfilled in Christ so that we might experience God's mercy and grace. The law was fulfilled in Christ so we might experience God's mercy and grace. So I I want us to walk through three affirmations. And these three affirmations, I, I want them to encourage, I pray they will encourage us to embrace the gospel of Christ, that they'll encourage us to walk faithfully in following Christ. And as we see the interaction in this text, we'll see how Christ uh, presents the gospel or, or displays and lives out the gospel in his interaction with this woman. Well, the first affirmation is this, that we affirm that adultery is sin. We affirm that adultery is sin. It's, it's scriptural. It's, 
It's biblical, right? I mean, Scripture speaks to this and, and, and speaks clearly about this. And so in, in the desire to, to see what this passage says, we, we want to see Christ's heart in response to this passage. And in wanting to be redemptive and seeing what Christ does, I, I think it's the exact opposite of what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing as they brought this woman forward. They, they wanted to condemn her. And so this passage of Scripture is really a wonderful picture of God's grace and mercy through Christ. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And suddenly there was a group of scribes and Pharisees who, who bring a woman to Jesus who was caught in the act and they're ready to condemn her. To put her to death. They claim the law of Moses as they approach Jesus there in verse 5. Now in the law of Moses, uh, or now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say, they ask him. Now clearly they, they know Exodus chapter 20 verse 14, the seventh commandment in the list of ten commandments. Which says you shall not commit adultery. It is the law of God, it's God's moral law given to his people that we might walk in holiness and righteousness. It's to govern our lives, to show us how to walk and follow God, how to, uh, to show us how to worship him, how to live in a way that brings him glory. But most likely what they were referencing was uh, the law found in Deuteronomy chapter 22 and Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. In Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 22 It says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge evil from Israel. So they bring this scenario to Jesus. And they say, what then do you say? Now, we see that there's some things immediately wrong with this picture. First question that comes to mind is what? Where's the guilty man? Where is he at? Why hasn't he been brought forward before Jesus along with this woman? Why has he been let go and she's been brought forward? Verse 6 gives us a clue, though, for the second thing. It tells us that they were saying this to test him, that is, to test Jesus, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Most likely, they had used this woman to set a trap for Jesus in trying to, uh, trying to extort the situation to force Jesus to say something that they could use against him. If he objected to stoning her, he would be showing a blatant disregard for the law and find disfavor in the eyes of, of the people. But if he objected to stoning her, or if he went forward with stoning her, then his credibility with the people as a a compassionate teacher would be ruined. And the scribes and Pharisees could then report to the Romans as, this is one Jesus who has sanctioned an execution. But the reality is, Jesus doesn't answer according to their folly. In fact, he never answers according to their folly. We see the great wisdom of God displayed in the person of Christ as he delivers answers to men and to women, really diving into the heart of the issue really getting below the surface and and speaking to the heart. He's already redefined adultery, seemingly early in his Galilean ministry in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, in the Sermon on the Mount. It was during the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you've heard that it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, Jesus just kind of, he goes, he goes deeper. He says it's more than just the physical act. It's about, it's about the heart. It's about what's happening from within. We understand that adultery is immoral. And it violates the covenant that God has designed to be lived out between a man and a woman through the union of marriage. So Jesus doesn't condone adultery in this passage, as maybe some of the early scribes, as Augustine claimed, would have would have been fearful of. Instead, he exercises grace toward this woman. And we'll see this grace that he exercises in a few moments. But I want to challenge us, brothers and sisters, not to not to be callous and dismiss this passage without hearing the relevant application for our own lives and for our own marriages. Just as Jesus redefined adultery, it necessitates a redefining of our own understanding. Adultery is not strictly a physical act. And and maybe I speak especially to my brothers here this morning. It's a it's a matter of the heart, as he said in the great in the Sermon on the Mount. We must be careful to guard our eyes and to guard our hearts in the matter of lust. For I'm certain, I'm certain that no one is innocent of this charge, perhaps even my sisters in the faith, that we are not innocent of this charge. In fact, probably the case that many men here this morning have struggled or maybe currently are struggling with this issue of lust and guarding the eyes. I think about righteous Job in Job 31.1 when Job said, I, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin or how could I look upon a woman lustfully? He makes this covenant with his eyes for the sake of purity, for the sake of holiness for the sake of his marital relationship between his husband, between husband and and wife. You know, this really is one of those secret sins, isn't it? It's one of those sins that that we hide away deep down. We keep it from our spouses. But I, I would encourage us to find a brother or women to find a sister and to go and to share with them the struggle that we're having. You need someone to hold you accountable. I need someone to hold me accountable. We all need others to hold us accountable in the matter of secret sin because secret sin is dangerous sin. It'll take root in our lives and it will wreck our entire lives. It will cause shipwreck of our faith. It could even wreck our family. It could wreck the family of others if it's not dealt with. And so I would say this, if, if you're currently involved in an affair or thinking about an affair, you need to repent. If you've not repented from a, an affair in the past, you, you need to repent. You need to repent before God. We must come before God and repent and ask Him to change our hearts and confess our sin to Him and then go and find a brother or a sister and confess our sin to them and ask them to hold us accountable. We must get serious about keeping the secret sin and, and, and not letting it be so dangerous and eat away at us until all that's left is a hollow shell, one who just has a picture of faith. A facade that is not internally 
at the heart impacted and, and transformed by the gospel. In verses 6 through 8, the issue really kind of turns away from the woman caught in the act. Now, the story is about the woman that's caught in the act, sure. But this passage isn't as much about her as it is about Christ and his mission. I hope you see that in this text. In verse 6, Jesus stooped down, and with his finger, he began writing in the ground. I don't know if you're like me, but as I, uh, as I watched the, um, the Passion of Christ, that movie that came out several years back, I was hopeful that in that scene I was going to be able to see what it was that Jesus was writing in the ground with his finger. Were you like, I don't know if you, if you found yourself thinking, maybe I'm going to see what he's writing, right? We've, uh, we've wondered about that. Many people have, there's been so much speculation as to, to what he has written or what he wrote there. But unfortunately, we're not told what he wrote. Some of the, some of the speculation has been early, that in the early church it was suggested that he he wrote the sins of the accusers of this woman. Some say that he was following the practice of Roman judges who wrote the sentence first and then read the sentence out loud. Some say he wrote the Old Testament references about wickedness and false witnesses that we know after that we know that after his um, after he would write this that they would then respond in the way of of leaving and walking away. According to verse 7, they, after he wrote on the ground, they continued, they persisted in asking him. And at that point, it's when he, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down and he wrote on the ground again in verse 8. I think what we see in this text is that the law is on full display. And what we see in the law, we see in these men who come wickedly, but they come wanting to condemn this woman. We see the law as bringing condemnation. The law is not evil, but the law doesn't issue forth mercy and grace. In fact, the law, the law reveals God's supreme and unbending demand for holiness The bar is set high. The bar is set at perfection. And these men, they know they have sinned. They know that they are not innocent in the matter. The reality was they were guilty of breaking the law. And Jesus' statement pierced to the heart and indicted uh, indicted them in their consciences. They too were lawbreakers. By breaking the law, they too had sinned. And this really leads to our second affirmation. The second affirmation is this. We affirm that the consequence of sin is death. Romans 2, 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Their consciences were seared at that moment. As Jesus speaks to them and says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
in the epistle of 1 Peter, Peter quotes from Leviticus 11.44 regarding God's demand for holiness. And in quoting, he speaks 1 Peter 1.15 and 16, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The ultimate end of the law really issues forth the wrath of God upon unlawful sinners. These unlawful sinners that we are, not just those who bring this woman in the text or not just the woman here. What, what we need to see is the connection that the consequence of sin is death. And like this woman was about to be stoned, even the law made provision for this to happen. We need to understand that because of sin, the New Testament scripture teaches us, the gospel shows us that, that all have sinned in Romans 3.23 and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin before God is condemnable as well. And that we too deserve this consequence of death for our sin. And if we're all sinners, if we're all guilty of breaking God's holy law, And because of our guiltiness, we stand condemned before God in His infinite holiness. The question then becomes, how does God forgive sinners without violating His holy law? And the answer is in our third affirmation. It's this, we affirm Jesus establishes righteousness in the lives of all who believe in Him. We affirm that Jesus establishes Righteousness in the lives of all who believe in him. Return to that central theme of this text. That is that the law was fulfilled in Christ. So that we might experience God's mercy and grace. Listen to Romans 8.3. For what the law could not do. Weak as it was through the flesh. God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. In verses 9 and 10, when they heard the words that Jesus spoke, it says, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and He was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court, So everyone has left, all those who were condemning her, who were bringing this charge, they've walked away. And then straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? All of her accusers being inwardly convicted of their own sin, they had fled the scene. And in verse 11, he says to her, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Now, the point isn't that Jesus simply dismissed her sin. Rather, he he acknowledged it and he charged her to live differently. He charged her to start life over. And this is the reality of the liberating work of Christ in every believer's life. Jesus would soon pay for her sin through his death, his burial and his resurrection. Borchet, in his commentary, he adds, Encountering Jesus always has demanded the transformation of life, the turning away from sin. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners offered the opportunity to start life anew. Brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't just dismiss our sin either. 
He has charged us as new creations to live differently, to start life anew. He has charged us to purge the old ways from our lives, to give up the sinful habits of the flesh, and to walk in holiness. Understanding that Christ fulfilled the law so that we might experience God's mercy and grace. It doesn't mean that we have a license to sin or to live any way we want as Christians. When we truly, truly experience the grace and the forgiveness of God in Christ, we're transformed in our inner man. Those who have been made new in Christ are are motivated to live a holy life for God's glory. And so when Christ says he didn't come to, uh, to do away with the law, he came to fulfill the law. The point is that he satisfied the righteous requirement that God demands on every one of us to live under the law and to live up to the standard of the law, perfection. And because we cannot live in perfection, because of our flesh, we are sinful. We are depraved and we we long for sin rather than for God. We long to walk in our own will instead of walking in God's will. And what Christ did was he satisfied the wrath of God that would be poured out against all of us for offending God and his holiness and sinning against him. The challenge for us, brothers and sisters, is that we must not presume upon the grace of God as we daily walk according to the grace of God. We understand that the law and grace they complement one another and that the law teaches us God's holy standard and grace provides for us to live in a way where we can walk with Christ and that we can approach the throne of God as we sang about this morning. And the work of grace in Christ has made it possible that you and I might have faith in Christ, that we might have faith and come to God and worship him and approach him. The way that Jesus tenderly deals with this woman doesn't dismiss her sin. Instead, he challenges her to live life anew. Because we affirm that Jesus establishes righteousness in the lives of all who believe in him. We don't have to come to him with our own righteousness. We come to him with the righteousness of Christ. And we are saved by grace through faith. As Dr. David read in Ephesians chapter 2 a few moments ago in the beginning of our service. This morning, maybe you're one who's in need of experiencing the tender mercies of God through Christ, like this woman experiences the tender mercies of God through Christ. She came to the midst of this circle thinking she was about to be stoned, and she leaves. She leaves without condemnation. I invite you this morning to pray where you're at, confessing your need for Christ. I invite you this morning to call out to Christ and ask Him, to pour out his tender mercies on you, to ask him to pour out his healing and tender mercies on you. Maybe this morning, the struggle that you're walking in isn't related to adultery, but it is related to the sin of the flesh. Maybe, maybe men for you, it, it involves guarding the eyes, guarding the mind, guarding the heart, seeking for purity in Christ. Maybe for us, we, we, need to, we need to surrender 
our own will for the sake of God's will. Or maybe for us it means we need to surrender our lives and begin, start anew. Start a relationship with Christ. Enter into a relationship with Christ knowing that we cannot attain heaven in our own righteousness. We cannot be saved according to our own righteousness. It takes a mighty work of God through Christ. And that happened through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's because of the work of Christ that we have been given the righteousness to come into the presence of God. Let me pray, and I'll encourage you to respond as the Lord leads you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for preserving this text for us. That we might see the wonderful truth of how our Savior has dealt tenderly and mercifully with one who was caught in the very act of sin. Oh God, may your grace and mercy be so tender toward us. And Lord, may we in turn be that gentle and tender toward one another. We pray, God, that as we see the law and grace and gospel, that we would be overwhelmed. I pray that we'd be overwhelmed by the hope and the joy of the gospel, the good news that we have life in you. And so, Lord, for some this morning who are struggling, I pray that you would give them the strength to start and begin life anew. Father, for others, I pray that we would be able to deal with sin in our life and confess it before you, repenting of our sin and trusting in you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.